Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series in which we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy, home of the Naval Studies Group, producers of the Australian Naval History podcast series. The Royal Australian Navy has had an involvement in expeditions to Antarctica and the sub-Antarctic islands from the earliest days of Australia's relationship with the continent. The focus has been to collect hydrographic and oceanographic information to improve Australia's Antarctic territory charts and sailing directions. The first RAN connection was through Lieutenant Commander Morton Moyes, who was a meteorologist in Sir Douglas Mawson's British Australasian Antarctic Expedition of 1911 to 1914. Moyes was later an instructor at the Royal Australian Naval College and inspired many young naval officers to try and voyage to the southern continent. In 1933, Australia proclaimed its sovereignty over the Australian Antarctic Territory, but there would be a lull in Australian Antarctic expeditions until 1948, when Commander Carl Oom commissioned HMAS Wyatt Earp, the RAN's only Antarctic research vessel, to take the first Australian National Antarctic Research Expedition, pronounced ANARE, south to Antarctica. Just to clarify the name, Listeners may be familiar with the name Wyatt Earp. Uh, Wyatt Berry Stapp Earp was a, a lawman and gambler in Arizona. Uh, his, uh, he was born in 1848, died in 1929, and is most famous for taking part in the famous gunfight at O.K. Corral in 1881 in the town of Tombstone, Arizona. And people in the early 20th century would be familiar with the story from the, uh, the stories of the, the Old West and the 1931 film My Darling Clementine. So Wyatt Earp is a name which is familiar from from, uh, Western American history, but the name Wyatt Earp also has a place in the history of the Royal Australian Navy and its involvement in Antarctic research. To discuss the story of HMAS Wyatt Earp and the Navy's involvement in Antarctica, I'm joined by Mrs Tris Burgess, who's writing a book about the Wyatt Earp called Wyatt Earp, a little ship with many names, to be published by Connor Court later in 2020, and Commodore John Compton, who was the hydrographer of the Royal Australian Navy from 1985 to 1990. John wrote the Australian Dictionary of Biography entry for Commander Carl Oom, of whom we'll hear more in this episode. So, turning to the substance of the story, uh, John, first, why was the Navy selected to take Anare to Antarctica? Following the Mawson-led British, Australian, New Zealand, Antarctic expedition of 1929-30 and 30-31, the Australian Antarctic Acceptance Act was passed in June 1933 and proclaimed in August 1936. The depression and events in Europe and the Far East precluded any practical follow-up by way of occupation and or continuing exploration in Antarctica until at least the end of World War II. In late 1946, Sir Douglas Mawson engaged the interest of the Minister for External Affairs, Dr Evatt, who set up an interdepartmental committee in December 1946 to make recommendations on an expedition to project both sovereignty and science. This was also against the knowledge of strong interest in Antarctica by America and Norway, with programmes planned for 1947. And advice that in the modern world it was not enough to claim sovereignty 
by merely landing, flag-waving and proclamation. It was occupation and continuity of programs which would carry the day. So, with approval in early 1947 and a desire to have a program in being before the end of 1947, time was of essence. The accepted outcome of the Interdepartmental Committee was that Navy would provide a ship and crew, Air Force would provide an aircraft, crew and maintenance, and also be responsible for the stores required. The scientific side would be sourced through the Council of Scientific Research and the Department of External Affairs. On Mawson's advice, Wangala, HMAS Wangala, who was ex-Wyatt Earp of Lincoln Ellsworth's fame, was selected and refitted and recommissioned as HMAS Wyatt Earp, honouring her previous Antarctic exploration ship's name. In post-World War II environment of a shrinking Navy, experienced manpower was available. Crew members needed three years continuous good conduct and three years superior performance to be accepted for the task. The commanding officer of Wyatt Earp would be the leader of the expedition, and Commander Carl Eric Oom, OBE, was appointed to the post based on his experience with the earlier Mawson expedition of 1930-31, his hydrographic expertise, and his acknowledged seamanship expertise. The crew consisted of six officers and 23 sailors. Scientific and other supernumeraries made a total of eight. Uh, made of eight. Make it made a total of 37 men. It was a very small ship. 37 men was a lot to carry, plus the stores and the aeroplane. They hoped to be in Antarctica before Christmas 1947. Thanks, John. Uh, Trish, uh, as we've heard, the ship chosen for this task was Wyatt Earp. But can you tell us more about the ship's history? Certainly. Um, she wasn't called Wyatt Earp then. She was built in Norway in 1919 and was named Fanny Fjord. She was one of the two largest ships built in Bolson's shipyard in Mould. She was not built as a fishing vessel, as many have claimed, but as a small trading ship a useful all-rounder. Initially, she carried cargo from Norway to England and from England to France and other parts ports as far north as Greenland. And yes, she went fishing in the exceptionally good season of 1925. In 1933, Lincoln Ellsworth, a very wealthy American, wanted a ship and a crew to take him and his plane to the Antarctic as he attempted to make the first flight across the continent. He sent Australian Sir Hubert Wilkins to Norway looking for a suitable vessel. Wilkins found and bought the Fanny Fjord. Ellsworth changed her name to Wyatt Earp after his hero, the legendary lawman Marshall Wyatt Earp, as we've heard. Ellsworth, with Wilkins managing everything for him, used the ship on four Antarctic expeditions between 1933 and 1939. On his third expedition in 1935-36, and after two previous failed attempts, 
Ellsworth made the successful flight across the continent with co-pilot Herbert, Herbert Hollick Kenyon. However, they ran out of fuel just short of their destination on the Bay of Wales in the Ross Sea. They had to land and wait for rescue. They waited in Little America for nearly two months, a well-stocked base set up by US Admiral Richard Byrd. In January 1936, their support ship, Wyatt, Ar Wyatt Earp, arrived just a few days after Discovery 2. The latter ship had been sent by the Australian government to search for the missing flyers amid, amid much newspaper publicity. After her fourth voyage with Ellsworth in 1938-39, ending in Hobart, the Wyatt Earp was sold to the Australian government and as RAFA, Royal Australian Fleet Auxiliary, Wangala, she made one return voyage to Darwin from Sydney, carrying stores. Following that voyage, she was commissioned as HMAS Wangala and spent the Second World War in South Australia as an examination ship, checking vessels wanting to enter port, until that service was suspended at that port in 1943. She became a guard ship and patrolled Wyala, Port Pirie and Wallaroo, as well as acting as mothership to the Naval Auxiliary Patrol. She was loaned to the South Australian Boy Scouts in 1945 and used as a training ship for Sea Scouts, becoming SSTS, Sea Scout Training Ship Wangala, until February 1947. Then the Australian government decided to use her for the first Anari expedition. She was recommissioned into the RAN as HMAS Wangala. She was extensively refitted, in fact an almost complete rebuild, in Port Adelaide, and her name was changed yet again to HMAS Wyaturp, a name the Director of Planning in Navy Office considered internationally famous in polar circles. She left Adelaide for Melbourne, Hobart and the Antarctic on 13th of December 1947. Things did not go smoothly and it was 8th of February 1948 before she finally sailed south. Trish, uh, thanks for that uh, summary of, of Wyatt Earp's history. Uh, you brought along a photograph, or rather a drawing, a photograph of a, of a painting of the Wyatt Earp, and frankly, it does look like a trawler. John, how suitable was this vessel for the task it faced? Well, at face value, Wyatt Earp could have been a suitable ship. She had been a private Antarctic expedition ship for four summers, acting as a floating base for some shore exploration and aircraft operations, as we have just heard from Trish. However, in this case, she was a small ship for the size of the crew, equipment and relatively large aeroplane. Her behaviour in any sort of seaway was wicked. She was wooden-hulled and round-bilged, no bilge keel to slow down any of her seaward motions. The centre of gravity and centre of buoyancy was such that she had an exceptionally strong writing moment and so a very short period of roll from one extremity to another of about four and a half seconds. A very stiff ship indeed. With rolls of over 40 degrees common, this turned any loose object into, including people, into projectiles of considerable force. That injuries to the crew were limited is amazing. 
but sleeping and life on board in general was a trial for all. Above all, the ship had been hard used over a period of 30-odd years, mostly in a hostile environment. Her service life with the Navy in World War II was the kindest use of her life. She leaked badly, particularly round the superstructure despite several attempts to alleviate it. Her hull worked in a seaway, causing continuous minor flooding, sometimes major, which affected mainly the superstructure area and accommodation and workspaces. Wyatt Earp was underpowered, even with a larger engine installed during her refit. Her auxiliaries were not able to power all the needed equipment at the same time. Her maximum speed was about eight and a half knots, and with sails set, perhaps ten or ten and a half. Not much to control the ship in heavy weather, or, if needed, in ice. Other equipment, such as the gyro compass, echo sounder, steering gear and propeller glands, behaved badly or broke periodically. Another major difficulty was the fact that there was no freshwater-making machinery, which caused heavy rationing, except when alongside an ice flow where chunks of ice could be melted down and tanked. In short, her deficiencies provided a powerful example and benchmark for what was needed for serious sustained work in a polar environment. Notwithstanding, she and her company survived 51 days at sea in perhaps the most hostile maritime environment on the planet. This was a testimony to the prudent seamanship and hard mental and physical work from all on board. Most were indeed sorry when it all ended. Thanks, John. It seems extraordinary that such a vessel would be sent on such a task. Uh, and we'll come back to the, to the vessel presently. For the moment, I'd like to focus on some of the individuals involved. Um, Trish, can you tell us something of Stuart Campbell and, and Philip Law? Yes, uh, Stuart Campbell had been chief pilot on both of Mawson's Banzari expeditions on Discovery in, in 1929-30 and in 1931. Carl Ohm had been the hydrographer, cartographer on the second voyage, so they both had considerable experience in the ice and knew each other. As part of the setting up of Anari, uh, Campbell was appointed the CEO. He actually went on LST 3501, landing ship tank, and later HMAS Labuan to set up the first Australian scientific research base on Heard Island. The plan was for Wyatt Earp to call it Heard Island on her way back from her voyage to the Antarctic continent and collect him. Because of the problems with Wyatt Earp's late departure, Campbell returned to Melbourne on the LST and joined Wyatt Earp after her first false start. Before her second departure, the government's executive planning committee met and Law, Campbell and Ohm attended the meeting. This was where Campbell announced his intention to travel on Wyatt Earp. Law's book, The Antarctic Voyage of HMAS Wyatt Earp, states that Ohm was left in absolute command of the expedition, although Campbell would clearly be able, as the leader of Anari, to exert considerable influence influence on any decisions apart from those concerning safety of the ship. And Campbell did have a lot of input throughout the voyage, as his diaries reveal. Philip Law had been a school teacher while studying part-time at the University of Melbourne. 
He earned a Master of Science in 1941 and was made Chief Scientist on the first Denari voyage. Not long after the expedition returned, in 1949, he succeeded Stuart Campbell as director of Anari. He had a strong belief in the value of management and educational techniques that ensured each individual had more than one role. The Australian bases at Mawson, Davis and Casey were established under his leadership and he led a number of exploratory expeditions. And thank you for that, Trish. And another character that both you and John have mentioned is uh, Lincoln Ellsworth. Could you briefly uh, tell us who he was? Lincoln Ellsworth, an American, was a very wealthy and very adventurous man. He was born in 1880 and he and his father financed and co-led the first trans-Arctic crossing, the Amundsen-Ellsworth Airship Expedition in 1926 and the first trans-Antarctic flight, which he made in 1935. When Ellsworth was 23, he worked for five years in Canada as a surveyor and engineer, never gaining formal qualifications. In 1917, he joined the United States Army and travelled to France, hoping to be trained as a pilot. In his autobiography, Beyond Horizons, he states that he learned to fly in France during the war. He was told he was too old to train as a pilot, but was taken on to become an observer. But there was some confusion at the airfield, and the French instructors set about training him as a pilot. He received his pilot wings. Assigned to clerical work, a bout of influenza caused him to be sent home to America. Ellsworth continued his wandering life with no real goals, but his experiences in France, including meeting Roland Amundsen, the famous Norwegian explorer, would stand him in good stead in years to come. Family money and the lure of Arctic exploration by air fired his imagination and his enthusiasm, and he persuaded his father to financially support Amundsen in his first unsuccessful polar flight, which started in May 1925. It took much more persuasion for his father to allow Lincoln to join Amundsen and four other men in two Dornier flying boats to fly to the North Pole. In 1926, he and Amundsen were joined by Italian Umberto Nabil, Leaving from Spitsbergen, they flew to Alaska, the first aircraft to overfly the Arctic. Then Ellsworth began his wandering again, looking for an expedition he could lead, but one he did not have to organise, and meeting Sir Hubert Wilkins set him on a new course, the Antarctic. Thank you. Um the fourth of the uh, the men who are significant in this story is uh, Commander Carl Oom. John Compton, can you tell us about Carl Oom? Yes. Carl Eric Oom was born in Sydney in 1904. His father was of Swedish origin and by occupation a draftsman. His skills and spatial sensibilities would seem to have passed to his son as his life's work was spent in the Navy as a hydrographer hydrographic surveyor and chart maker. Carl's mother's maiden name was Legay, which provides an intriguing note to his time as commanding officer of HMAS Wyatt Earp. 
The Department of Information Photographer on the voyage was Laurie Legay, a noted adventurer and fashion photographer. I haven't been able to determine any significance in the, in the coincidences, but it's an unusual surname in Australia. Carl joined the Navy as a 13-year-old cadet midshipman in 1918. He survived the savage retrenchments of, in the College Cadet Corps in 1920-21 and 22 as a consequence of the Washington Naval Treaties post-World War I, which tried to limit the size of warships and the size of navies. He graduated from the college in 1921 and was noted for his individuality and physical fitness. After serving service and further training in the United Kingdom, he returned to Australia in 1926, joining HMAS Moresby as a trainee hydrographer. He progressed quickly and gained respect for initiative, boat handling and the speed and accuracy of his work. These attributes led him to be selected as a member of Sir Douglas Mawson's expedition to Antarctica in 1930-31, where his surveys and cartography proved valuable and no doubt the precursor of his later command of Wyatt Earp. The outbreak of war found him again in the Royal Navy, surveying and later in command of an ASW, an anti-submarine warfare and convoy uh, escort, HMS Gleaner, in which he was highly regarded. He returned to Australia in command of HMAS Wyala, surveying the shipping routes under enemy fire and bombing along the coast of New Guinea to facilitate landing and logistics as the Japanese were forced west and north. Promotion to commander came in June 1943 and with it the title Commander of Task Group 70.5 with the responsibility of producing the charts of the southwest Pacific region for all Allied forces. His wartime service saw the award of the Gill Memorial Prize of the Royal Geographic Society, the OBE Military, the Officer of the British Empire Military, the US Legion of Merit, Legionnaire, and the US Bronze Star. Carl was in command of HMAS Warrigo when in November 1947 he was posted in command of HMAS Wyatt Earp. He has been described by his colleagues members of the expedition and others as a short, solid man, calm under pressure, self-assured, impish sense of humour, superb seaman, firm but fair, and overall somewhat enigmatic, who kept his own counsel. Photographs of him tend to show him hiding his short stature by inclining his body and bending his knee. His nickname in the hydrographic service was Gaffer Oom. He was the boss. In a final little aside, the Commonwealth purchased Kirribilli House, but it was empty. Carl, when hydrographer and the headquarters were at Garden Island, applied to take up residence. It was granted. So for a while, he was the first resident, travelling daily by boat from Kirribilli steps to Garden Island. Thanks, John. Well, thanks, uh, Trish and John. You've both set up both the, the personnel and the vessel that made this voyage. Uh, Trish, can you tell us more about the Anare the, the, uh, and the, the objectives of that expedition? Yeah, certainly. Um, as mentioned earlier, Stuart Campbell was appointed CEO of Anare 
It came about as in 1946, Sir Douglas Mawson stepped up his representations to the Minister for External Affairs to support Australia's territorial claims in the Antarctic, as Norway and the United States in particular were taking a greater interest in the frozen south. In 1946, the Minister held an interdepartmental committee meeting to which Mawson was invited. The committee recommended that the departments concerned should develop concrete plans for an expedition to the Australian Antarctic Territory using a naval ship equipped with a suitable aircraft. The object was to find an ice-free area on that continent that could be used as a site for a permanent base. Orson suggested that the HMAS Wangala, the former Wyatt Herb, owned by the Navy but on loan to the South Australian Sea Scouts in Port Adelaide, should be refitted for use by the expedition. The proposal was accepted by Cabinet on the 20th of December 1946, and on the 4th of January 1947, first meeting of the Australian Executive Committee of Exploration and Exploitation was held, chaired by the head of the Department of External Affairs. They put forward the following proposals. That an executive planning committee be formed under the department. The preliminary plans for an expedition be drawn up at an estimated cost of £250,000, probably a fortune today. That the ship Wyatt be refitted by the Navy. That an LST, a landing ship tanks, be provided by the Navy to establish a scientific station at Macquarie Island. And that Stuart Campbell, retired from the RAF, be seconded from his position as Director of Air Navigation and Safety in the Department of Civil, Avi- Civil Aviation, act as Chief Executive Officer. Those are the, the uh, objectives, and I think we'll hear more of those later. But what was the ship supposed to do? What was the expe- expedition supposed well, to do the once the it got to obje- Antarctica? The main objective was to find a suitable, ba- a suitable site for a base, a permanent base on the continent. So hence the in- inclusion of an aircraft. Uh, an aircraft, yes, is always useful in the ice to see if you can move ahead or not, okay, or get well, out of the ice, probably. Indeed. Well, moving ahead, John, uh, take us on the voyage from Hobart, uh, leaving on Boxing Day 1947. How was that voyage south? Wyatt Earp first attempted to head south from Hobart on the 26th of December 1947. However, problems again plagued the ship. The weather was foul, the gyro broke down, the steering chain broke again, but most concerning was the propeller shaft. The stern gland was showing signs of misalignment. When tightened, it caused overheating and when loosened, water poured into the compartment. On the 1st of January, the ship was ordered to return to Melbourne. She had reached longitude 14031 east and latitude 5154 degrees south. She hadn't got very far. She arrived in Melbourne on the, 20, on the 7th of January 1948 when she was docked at Williamstown Graving Dock for two weeks of engine and shaft realignment and a re-corking of the sh- openings in the ship's hull. All was said to be well yet again and the ship departed south on February 
Sunday the 8th of February 1948. Nearly half the summer season had gone. For 10 days the weather was occasionally fair but mostly poor to awful. The first icebergs were sighted on the 18th of February and the pack ice three days later. Much excitement was evident amongst the crew. The trials and tribulations of continued leaking breakdowns and wild movement were put to one side. Although water fresh was becoming a problem, some alleviation was possible alongside an ice flow on the 23rd of February and chunks were broken off and rendered down. Depth sounding with the echo sounder became a problem in the very cold water because no antifreeze had been put around the oscillator. It made sounding difficult and un at times unreliable. Continued pack, pack ice, getting heavier, caused the captain to change course to the east and head towards the Bellini Islands, which were raised on the 28th of February. Some time was spent in fixing their geographic positions and charting their coastline. On the 6th of March, Wyatt Earp retraced her path westwards and on the 13th of March, in fine weather, sheltered by ice, the aeroplane was fitted out and launched. Two flights were made, but no, no land was sighted. On the 16th of March, the ship headed for Macquarie Island, which was raised on the 20th of March, and rendezvous was made with LST 3510, which had been landing and setting up a scientific station. Wyatt Earp departed from Macquarie Island on the 24th of March and arrived in Port Phillip on the 31st of March. Despite all the problems encountered from day one, from Adelaide on the 13th of December 1947 to the 31st of March 1948, the men of Wyatt Earp were sad that it was all over. I think it was a testimony to their fortitude. Thanks, John. Uh, so, Trish, how successful was this first voyage? Well, as I said just now, the main objective to find a suitable ice-free site with landing access on the Antarctic continent to establish an Australian permanent base was not achieved. The expedition could not reach the mainland. But despite this, the voyage achieved much of the scientific work set out in the program, even though Philip Law said the program for the wider voyage was ambitious. In an article in 1978 in the Naval Historical Review, the First Lieutenant, W.F. Cook, later Captain Cook, said, within the limits of the ship's capabilities and the gear which was provided, I think all performed reasonably well. We were, of course, frustrated by the late start and the exceptionally bad season. I have nothing but praise for the way in which everybody in the ship did his job. The first Anari expedition raised the profile of Australia's Antarctic territorial claims in the eyes of the public and the need for such expeditions. Newspapers played a large role in this with constant stories and quotes from people such as Sir Douglas Mawson and Sir Hubert Wilkins, already Australian Antarctic heroes. New ships for Antarctic work were leased and bases built, and today Australia's territorial claim is acknowledged. Whiter played a very large role in this. The Melbourne Age reported, under a headline, Whiter Adventures in the Antarctic, that Stuart Campbell had said, after the 7,000-mile voyage, 
the trip had been completely successful. Some of the highlights of the voyage, and he listed some, were a survey of the Ballinair Islands, which were discovered in 1839 and had not been visited since. Um, this was incorrect, as Discovery 2 had been there in January 38. But um, The intense cosmic ray and meteorological observations uh, had been completed or had been carried out and the results might not be known for a while. Included in the facts of interest that among the highlights was the birth of two healthy kittens to Mimi on the very edge of the Antarctic continent. The article went on to quote Group Captain Campbell speaking about the ship and he said the Wyatt Earp had behaved splendidly throughout. The engines and hull had been 100%. But there is no doubt, he said, that we want a roomier and more modern ship for future exploration. Here we were cramped and somewhat uncomfortable. An eight-month stay in the Antarctic in such conditions would have been almost intolerable. Thank you. Uh, John, as a hydrographer, you're probably the best person in the world to assess the hydrographic value of the Wyatt Earp's voyage. Uh, how would you rate it? Well, in a word, limited. Uh, there was a track plot. There were soundings from time to time when the echo sounder was working. The most significant achievement was the fixing and coastlining uh, by running surveys of the Bellini Islands. Oceanographic measurements generally were limited and largely due to the type of equipment and the space available to set up and operate which seems to contradict um, some of Stuart Campbell's statements because in his book, The Antarctic Voyage of the Wyatt Earp, he, um, <clears throat> every page is uh, desperate. Either he was seasick or the ship was doing something terrible or it was breaking down or we were late. <laughs> um, so I think you, the report afterwards was for a totally different audience. Indeed. Uh, well, he was speaking to the newspapers, I think. Uh, Trish, would, yes. would, what would your estimate be of Stuart Campbell's optimism? Well, I think they all had different views after they got back, and um, Philip Law and uh, Stuart Campbell in particular made um, comments about how dreadful it all was, but then when they came back and they were talking to the press, it was it was much better. Um, and they were then looking to the future of what was going to happen next. I assume that they were all passionate about the idea of Antarctic exploration, so it was in everyone's interest to, to talk up the, the voyage. To talk it up, indeed. It was a good baseline, uh, really. Um, I think that was its best outcome. Um, it said what not to do, very definitely, and it said what was needed to do it properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned, John, that, that Carl Um retired soon after. Did, did this, this was his, the, the climax of his career, I imagine. I think his wartime service would have been the climax of his career. I mean, he was really highly regarded, and I think he was the most decorated hydrographer and one of the most decorated men of the Royal Australian Navy from World War II. Um, yes, he had an unfortunate end, really. He became ill. After Wyatt Earp, um, he returned to the hydrographic service as hydrographer. He had his little time in Kirribilli House. That might have been the highlight of his life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, 
Um, he was passed over for promotion to captain in 1951, and I think that was probably because signs of illness were manifesting themselves. And he returned to sea briefly in command of HMAS Warrigo in December of 1951. But poor health really saw him posted ashore in February 52 and invalided from the service on the 30th of October 52. Mm. So uh, the end was, from the service point of view, was very quick. Um, he retired to the south coast and um, he died down there in mm. 1960, uh, 1972, mm. 20 years later. Yeah. Thank you. Um, well, returning to the White Herb, Trish, um, what happened to the White Herb after its return from Antarctica? Um, after it returned from the Antarctica on the 1st of April 1948, she was deemed unsuitable to travel south again and was paid off in June 48. And for three years she lay alongside the wharf at Williamstown in Melbourne. And I believe she was handed over from the Navy to the Department of Supply, which was the sort of umbrella department for all the service departments in those days. In November 1951, the Australian government put her up for sale and she was bought by the Arga Shipping Company of St Helens in Tasmania. By, 19, by July 52, she had been renamed again Wangala, and began her new life as a coastal steamer carrying explosives to Western Australia and Papua and such things as cement, potatoes and iron along the eastern and southern coasts of Australia. In 1956, the Sydney Ulverston Shipping Company bought Wangala for trading along the Queensland coast and changed her name to Natone. She entered the last phase of her life and her last name change. Under Natone, Natone, she sailed to Fiji, Papua, New Guinea, Lord Howe Island and along the east coast from Tasmania to Cairns with various cargoes, including taking cattle to New, New Guinea. In January 1959, after battling cyclonic weather coming down the Queensland coast from Ley, she developed leaks that her pumps could not deal with. The engine room flooded, her sails were ho hoisted and Natone looked for shelter. During the night, she ran aground near Mudlow Rocks, 110 miles short of Brisbane, and became a total loss. And she was the last ship in the Royal Australian Navy to hoist flag, uh, sails. So she, she's there and, and occasionally, in, given the rough weather and things, little bits of her appear on the golden sands of Queensland. Mm. That's a sad end for a ship that went literally all over the world. Very yeah. sad. Can we end on a, a reflective note? Uh, can, can I ask you both to comment on the legacy of the Navy's involvement in this first Nari expedition? Trish? The Royal Australian Navy's been involved in many Antarctic events since that first one. The RAN's capabilities were essential to the establishment of the Anari stations at Heard and Macquarie Islands, and the Australian Navy continued to supply them for some years. In 1950, HMS Australia made a desperate dash, according to the Cairns Post, from Sydney to Heard Island with an open bridge to rescue the station medical officer, Dr Serge Udovikov, who had self-diagnosed appendicitis. 
In January 1979, HMAS Hobart was sent to Macquarie Island to rescue a biologist who had fallen 200 feet down a cliff and sustained extensive spinal and leg injuries. He needed urgent specialist medical treatment and overcoming many obstacles, essential personnel were recalled from leave and other ships contributed crew members. Hobart arrived at Macquarie Island on the 8th of January and rendezvoused with the Antarctic support vessel MV Tarladan, which brought a helicopter from Tasmania. Hobart's crew had constructed a helipad on the voyage south and a successful trial landing enabled the evacuation of the patient to go ahead. HMAS Hobart made the 900-mile trip to Hobart in a record 39 hours. In 1985, when Nella Dan became stranded in pack ice for six weeks, the Australian Antarctic Division chartered the HMAS Stalwart for one voyage to resupply sub-Antarctic Macquarie Island. Australia has ongoing search and rescue obligations in the seas around Australia, including the Southern Ocean. This obviously includes participation by the Royal Australian Navy, although most of HMA ships are not well suited to Antarctic waters. In January 1997, HMAS Adelaide rescued the single-handed round-the-world yachtsman Tony Bullimore from under his upturned yacht far in the Southern Ocean. Not remembered so well as that en route to find Tony Bullimore, a capsized competitor, Frenchman Thierry Dubois, was also rescued by a Seahawk helicopter from HS Adelaide, HMAS Adelaide. So the Navy is involved wherever it needs to be, basically. Indeed. John, uh, your thoughts on the legacy of an RA, and could you say something about the current Wyatt Earp? Yes, well, um, from a hydrographic point of view, uh, it was important for uh, maritime safety that decent knowledge of the approaches to and the uh, areas around the bases that Australia occupied was properly done. And um, in the 1980s, uh, hydrographic officers joined resupply vessels uh, for passage sounding and limited boat sounding in the areas. Uh, a lot of the ships, the chartered ships, had touched bottom at various times, uh, so it was quite a, uh, an immediate need. Uh, the process has grown in terms of support uh, through uh, an annual Antarctic Mapping and Hydrographic Charting Coordination Committee, and since 1960, uh, 1987, Detached teams from the hydrographic office have spent time uh, each season working in Antarctica with portable equipment and dedicated boats. They were called hydrographic office detached survey units, HODSUs. The change in control of the hydrographic service recently and even more modern equipment has seen units designated as deployable geospatial survey teams, DGSTs. The first dedicated Antarctic survey motorboat was Deliverance until 1992, but she was a very old ship. In fact, she was my survey motorboat when I was in command of Flinders in the 1970s. When Deliverance was paid off, a new ship was built, or a new survey motorboat was built, called an 
Antarctic survey vessel named Wyatt Earp, would you believe? Deliverance until 1992, when Antarctic survey vessel Wyatt Earp was delivered for the task. This mode of operation ran from 1986 through to 2003. There was a lapse of seven years until Wyatt Earp was paired with the Antarctic boat Harry Burton. They found that really um, with deep draft vessels, uh, it was very easy with the equipment earlier on that was used to miss odd pinnacles and so quite often the boats work in pairs and have a wire drag across um, between them to take, make sure that there is nothing missed between the lines of soundings and also with multi-beam echo sounders so that a very wide swathe, swathe of sounding can be done. Wyatt Earp was due to deploy with Aurora Australis this last summer, but priorities changed and space became unavailable. She's presently at a Port Huon boatyard uh, run by Mr Noakes uh, and who has held the contract for maintaining the vessel and he will be able to do it both in Hobart and in Sydney when um, the new uh, Antarctic resupply ship being built in Romania comes called the Naima. Naima is Aboriginal for... Aurora, so Aurora Australis will be a place will be replaced by uh, another light in the southern sky. Naima will have a much greater resupplyability than Aurora and be able to deploy two uh, detached teams with all their equipment each summer, and that's the plan from the arrival of Naima. John, thanks very much, and, and thanks to Trish too, that you've given us fascinating insights into the earliest days of Australia's naval engagement with Antarctica, and as John, you've just told us that that engagement continues and will do in the future. That's all we have time for for this podcast, but my thanks to Trish Burgess and to John Compton. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. The Naval Studies Group would like to acknowledge the work of the noted hydrographer and historian Mr Kevin Slade for his advice and, and information in the preparation of this episode. Tragically, Kevin Slade died suddenly earlier this year and this episode is dedicated to his memory. Thank you for joining us and for more information on the Australian Naval History podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.